Welcome back, everybody, to Edge of the Rabbit Hole. I'm author and ghost historian Mike Ricksecker. With me, as always, my co-host is Victoria Monday. And down in the chat room, quarantine goes haunting the chat. We have a fantastic show coming up for you tonight. Psychic lawyer and psychic explorer Mark Anthony is back with us. We've had him on a number of times before, before talking about a myriad of different topics. Last time it was about uh, supernatural in COVID, but this time is to talk about triangle activity around the world, more specifically the Bermuda Triangle, which is right in his own backyard. Mark, fantastic to have you back with us. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Victoria. It's always great uh, being back on uh, Edge of the Rabbit Hole. Yeah, absolutely. We love having you. And yes, everybody, I am drinking eggnog tonight. <laughs> hey, why not? You know, this <laughs> this Thanksgiving, talk about scary. You know, uh, this is 2020 has been a very unusual year. It's been a very painful year for a lot of people. Uh, and I don't know how nostalgic I'm going to be for it once it passes. So uh, but but for everybody facing uh, Thanksgiving um, without without a loved one there and uh, facing the holidays, you know, our country's been through pandemics. We've been through the depression. We've been through world wars. We can do this. It's not going to yep. be easy. It's not going to be fun, but we can do this. Right. Absolutely. We've, we've been through a lot before as a country, as a world. We can certainly battle through this one to get through it. And eventually, you know, this too shall pass and, and we'll move on. And you're right. I will not be nostalgic about 2020, but I think it's one of those that we can look back on and be like, you know, we got through that and whatever the next great ordeal is, we can say, hey, we got through that 2020 stuff. We can get through whatever the next thing <laughs> yeah. is. Yeah. yeah, someday we'll be telling our grandkids, yeah, back in 2020. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Uphill both Stay ways, home. you know. <laughs> but I read today, 2020 is not the year you're supposed to acquire things. It's supposed to be the year where you know what you can live with and what you can live without. So personally, I've learned a lot this year. <laughs> if I can ever remember yeah. what day of the week it is. <laughs> Or months. Well, you know, Victoria, I think that's a very important point because I think, you know, in gain there's loss, as loss there is gain, and there's a balance to the universe. And what we've seen with 2020 is, in many ways, it has shown us what's important our family, yeah. mm -hmm. the people we love. And back in March during the lockdown, uh, I live in a barrier island on East Coast Central Florida. So when Mike said the Bermuda Triangle, uh, Triangle's in my backyard, he's not kidding. I mean, oh, it's it's so essentially cool. right up the street. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, I mean, so I live about maybe like eight, 900 feet from the ocean. And, um, but, but in this little community, I started seeing parents with their kids, mm -hmm. uh, couples taking walks, uh, older folks walking, holding hands. And it seemed like everything paused and, and people got off the insanity of the merry-go-round that is our world and took some time to stop and smell the roses. And certainly the, everyone being out of work and, and the loss of income and the difficulties everybody faced, but you're absolutely correct, Victoria. Mm -hmm. This was the year that, that demonstrated to all of us what is really important. and. Uh, so anyway, That's I don't want true. to get off on a whole no. COVID, COVID rap because <laughs> you know, Lord knows we're all living with it. So yeah, all are. my friends started um, not victory gardens, but like COVID gardens, and we all learned to make bread again. There's so much bread this year. <laughs> Everything. Oh, I have a really good recipe if you need it. Three ingredients. <laughs> we should post it online. Okay. <laughs> We'll uh, post it on the new Edge of the Rabbit Hole website, which I, I was supposed to make that announcement <laughs> at the beginning of the show, too. Yes, everybody, there is a new Edge of the Rabbit Hole website. You can go to edgeoftherabbithole.com. And um, I mean, it, there's not a ton there, but there's information about the show, links to the archive playlist, and um, the upcoming schedule of guests, which everybody always asks, where, hey, who are the guests that are coming up? And now you can actually see the list there. So check it out edge of the rabbit hole.com so, so mike b before you start asking me mm -hmm. questions let me ask yeah. you a question your new book a walk in the shadows <laughs> from what i've seen it's doing really well and i know that you were supposed to go on tour this year to promote it but instead you shifted your focus to going on tour online and uh, i think it's really great because you know i'm seeing it all over social media and uh, i've seen the reviews on it are really good so so kudos so thank you um, I'm going to do a pitch for it. If you want to learn about all things mysterious from a ghost historian and a logical point of view, then definitely 
A Walk in the Shadows is the book for you. Thank you, Mark. I absolutely appreciate that. And, uh, you know, this man here is a writer as well. I know we were going to talk about uh, the uh, Bermuda Triangle here, but Mark also has a couple of wonderful books, Evidence of Eternity and Never Letting Go. So make sure you also uh, grab those books because uh, Mark's journey is uh, definitely a intriguing one, and we are very lucky to have him on the show tonight. So definitely pick those up as well. Thank you. Yep. I don't so... have a book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on a graphic novel, though. <laughs> That's right, your graphic novel. Yeah. Ooh, a graphic novel is there. Sex and violence? No. <laughs> There's magic, though. Okay, yeah, magic works. It's called uh, you know, Only because we're after 9 o'clock, did, have a, did I say yeah. sex and violence? But, <laughs> but I like G-rated movies as long as there's plenty of sex and violence. But anyway. <laughs> uh, all right. So on that note, let's get time. into the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> so, yeah, this is, this is a subject, Mark, that... Um, you know, certainly fascinated me. Of course, everybody's very familiar with the Bermuda Triangle. I was on a show, um, well, aired earlier this year called the Alaska Triangle, which is very similar type of phenomenon yes. that happens in Alaska. And there's other of these types of areas around the world, like uh, the Dragon's Triangle out yeah. there by Japan, Bridgewater Triangle in the Massachusetts area. There's even a Lake Michigan Triangle, Nevada. But you're right there by the Bermuda Triangle, which is the most famous. Um, let me go ahead and I'll, I'll toss up the map here real quick so people can get an idea of where that is. Oh, super. And, I'm glad, glad yep. you got that. Here we go. So we'll just start with the basics, Mark. What What is the Bermuda Triangle? The Bermuda Triangle is about a 720,000 square mile area, and it's essentially in a triangular pattern. The northern point is the island of Bermuda. Uh, the western point is Miami, Florida, and the southern point of the triangle is Puerto Rico. And it, it uh, historically has been called the Devil's Triangle because of the disappearance and loss of lives. Um, so many ships and in the last hundred years, air, aircraft have disappeared. In fact, in, in the last century, there have been over a thousand deaths uh, attributed to unexplained disappearances in the Bermuda Triangle. And it's it's been chronicled for the last 500 years. And um, I, I've got a lot of personal experience with it because, you know, like I was saying, I live in East Coast Central Florida. So off, off the coast here is the uh, Western border of the Bermuda Triangle. But, um, you know, I've spent a lot of my life visiting mystical and spiritual sites around the world and doing some pretty, uh, I guess people call them adventurous things. But uh, one of the, 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 the most rewarding things that I've ever done is I spent a fair amount of time in the Caribbean serving on two different ships, tall sailing ships, the Polynesia and the, the Phantom. And I actually have a picture of the Phantom right here. I'd like to share with everybody and see if there's, you said okay without the glare? Yeah, there's no glare. We can okay, see it. great. The Phantom um, has a fascinating uh, history to it. It was uh, the last in the line of, of the tall sailing ships. And the they were sort of the successor to the, the clipper ships of the 19th century. And this one was built by... Um, uh, by the Duke of Westminster in, in the 1920s, and eventually Aristotle Onassis acquired it. And he was going to give it as a wedding present to the movie star Grace Kelly when she was going to be married to Prince Rainier of Monaco. But then Onassis didn't end up on the and on the invitation list, so he reneged on the, uh, the present and kept the, the windjammer. Long story short, the the um, Windjammer fleet acquired the Phantom, and she was about about 320 feet long and became the flagship of the Windjammer fleet. So 
we would cruise along the uh, the, the southern uh, border of the Bermuda Triangle, and there was this one island that uh, wasn't far from Antigua. And it's an uninhabited island, and we'd always stop there, and you know we'd uh, offload the passengers, and they do a big barbecue, sort of the Caribbean version of a luau, and it was really great. But right off the coast of this island was the Bermuda Triangle. And the crew was largely West Indian. And the West Indians, are they're very spiritual. I mean, there's a big belief in magic and voodoo there. And, you know, uh, Mike and Victoria, without, without sounding cliche, I'll tell you what, every time we'd look out into the Bermuda Triangle, it always seemed like the sky was purple and stormy and we'd see lightning. And the West Indies would be like, hey, man, we are not going there, man. <laughs> you know, and, and they <laughs> they never and they never wanted to sail into it. And, you know, I was with them uh, totally. But, uh, but of course, uh, cruise ships, uh, military vessels, airplanes fly through and go through the Bermuda Triangle all the time. So there's this myth that, oh, my God, if you fly through the Bermuda Triangle, you know, someone's going <laughs> to come and grab you, but which is right. not the case. However... Um, there are several uh, mysterious disappearances, which uh, we're going to, to talk about. But um, with the Phantom, it, it breaks my heart what happened to the Phantom, because in 1998, Hurricane Mitch was coming. And it's fascinating because we just had Hurricane Ada, and uh, now we have Iota, which just mm-hmm. devastated right. Nicaragua. And Hurricane Mitch essentially was uh, following the same path as both Iota and Ada. And the windjammer uh, offloaded all the passengers in Belize, and then the Phantom was going up the coast of uh, the off the Yucatan because they figured, all right, we're going to go north of it, and they're heading for the Bay Islands. But then Hurricane Mitch switched direction, and the Phantom was never heard from again. And she went down with all hands. Thirty-one lives were lost. The only thing that ever appeared was a ladder. Uh, they oh, found wow. uh, one of the ladders floating, and and I always, uh, you know, I remember when I when I heard about that, you know, because once once you were on a windjammer, you know, they called you an old salt. Um, it broke my heart. Uh, yeah. It was an elegant ship, and I knew some of the the crew, and uh, so for me that that was a, a great tragedy. While it technically did not occur in the Bermuda Triangle, it, it was still a a uh, very very. Uh, well, something close and, and personal to you. Yes. Yeah. So, and just, you know, you hear about, you know, the loss of 31 lives. I mean, that's just, you know, extremely yeah, sad. Yeah, it, it, it really is. And, and um, you know, on, on a ship like that, when you get hit by a powerful hurricane, uh, there there's really very little hope when, when you get waves of the magnitude and especially – the type of storms like Iota and and Ada. Uh, I understand Iota was a Category 5 hurricane. Now, living in East Coast Florida, I've been through, I think, 16 hurricanes and two tornadoes. And it's funny because i got some neighbors, they just moved down from New York, and they're like, ooh, a hurricane, that sounds exciting. Oh. It's like, yeah, let me tell you, get over that real quick. Yeah, you know, I've been through a handful, and that's enough for me. Yeah, yeah that's 15 hurricanes and two tornadoes more than I uh, – um, ever would like to. I could go another 15 lifetimes without that again. Yeah. At least with a hurricane, you know it's coming. It's the tornadoes. You you don't see them coming till it's too late. No, you don't. And one of the things that people don't realize about hurricanes is that they cause tornadoes. Oh, and yeah. so a lot of the damage is is because on the edge of the the hurricane, on the periphery of the hurricane, the outer bands, and then during the eye of the hurricane, it creates conditions conducive to, to tornadic activity. Mm-hmm. And a couple of years ago on, on the street that I live on, a tornado touched down, it ripped the pool cage off um, one of the neighbor's house and threw it through the front window of the neighbor's oh. house across the street. And uh, it happened you know, within, within uh, seconds, literally. Yeah. And speaking of things happening within seconds, <laughs> um, I want to talk a bit about uh, the history of, of the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah, absolutely. 500 years ago, in 1492, Christopher Columbus, as we all know, was uh, sailing. He was sailing west to, in his hopes to get to the East Indies. 
and he encountered some very strange things as he approached what is now North and Central America. And he he didn't know, you know, he thought he was in the East Indies, what, what would now be Indonesia. And he, he wrote in his journal about this mysterious sea filled with seaweed. And his crew was terrified of it because they felt that their ship was going to get, the, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria were going to get caught in the seaweed. Well, we now know this to be what's called the Sargasso Sea. And the Sargasso Sea is... Um, about 200 uh, square miles, <clears throat> excuse me, a gigantic clump of seaweed off of North America. And it's a few hundred miles uh, off North America and off the Bahamas. And in uh, ancient mariners felt that it was filled with sea monsters and that ships would get caught there and they would die. And ships do get caught there, but not because of the seaweed, but because of the doldrums. And the doldrums is an area in the ocean where all of a sudden there's no wind. You always hear about the trade winds, and that's what the ships like the Windjammer and certainly Columbus's ships, they wanted to catch the prevailing winds and then, you know, they'd be able to sail through it. So first off, the Sargasso Sea was looked at as an evil omen by Christopher Columbus's crew. Uh, today, marine biologists refer to the Sargasso Sea as the ocean's rainforest because it, of the abundant sea life and it, it creates breeding conditions for many different species. But five centuries ago, it was looked at as a wicked and, and negative thing. And then Columbus reported a strange fire from the sky which plunged into the ocean. In reviewing his captain's log, it is most likely a meteor that he saw. Right. But then a few weeks later in the same region, Columbus reported strange lights hovering over the ocean. Okay, so this is where, you know, the the uh, legends and the mystery of the Bermuda Triangle really start to kick up. And then the crowning bit of mystery was Columbus reported that in all three of his ships, the Santa Maria, the Pinta, and the Nina, all the compasses started malfunctioning and going haywire. So what what do we have there? Well, I'm going to discount the uh, Sargasso Sea. Okay, that's that's just a, um, a marine, um, right. you know, a, you know, a, a beautiful actually uh, marine marine ecosystem. But we have magnetic anomalies. We have something going, you know, which caused a malfunction of compasses, and therefore. Uh, difficulty in navigation, and then we have strange lights hovering over the ocean. So it's very interesting that this was the first in the long line of of uh, unexplainable phenomenon that occurred in what we now call the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah, it's amazing to me that it goes all the way back to Columbus. And yeah, the the fireball was probably just a uh, a meteor, but you know a lot of you know, like the ancient alien theorists will speculate that the the lights in the sky may have been UFOs and, and things like that. Certainly, the uh, the magnetic anomalies with the uh, with the compasses is interesting. We do have a question down in the chat from uh, Sarah Yusuf asking <laughs> if uh, people believe that there's a significant EMF anomaly that messed with the technology uh, of the time of the ships and planes went missing. And I know we're going to get into a lot of those different oh, we're, stories, we're but what do you think? Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, we're definitely getting into that. I want to fast forward about 400 plus years to 1918, uh, in the waning days of world war one, the U S Navy's largest cargo vessel, the USS Cyclops, it was 520 tons, a million pounds. And it was considered one of the most technologically advanced ships of the day. Why? because it had a radio, okay? <laughs> but, but, you know, back then they called it the wireless and the Cyclops, all of a sudden, it just disappeared. There was uh, no radio signal, no SOS. And the U.S. Navy went out searching for it and they couldn't find a trace of it, not an oil slick, no debris and nothing. And President Woodrow Wilson said, only God and the sea knew what happened to that great ship. Now, strangely, 
1941, two other Cyclops-class ships also disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle, and neither of them sent out a distress signal. And by 1941, ships had uh, were quite a bit more sophisticated, and they they had more than just uh, um, radio. They had all sorts of uh, equipment to detect anomalies and, and more sophisticated weather equipment. So whatever happened to these three very large ships happened extremely fast, and it didn't even give the crew a chance to send out a distress signal. Okay, I have questions now. <laughs> okay, go ahead, Victoria. Before you get too far. Okay. Um, with the metal compasses spinning around, that would be because of a more magnetic nature of that area. Is that true? Absolutely. Okay. So if you go with that thought and there was like this huge burst of magnetic energy or whatever coming from the water, could that not also be like the northern lights, but just in the Bermuda Triangle? Could that explain the colors of the skies? And... Are the horse latitudes the same things as the doldrums? Do they go through the Bermuda Triangle? Um, that one I don't know, but okay. with the EM fields, um, I was going to wait till later, but you know, oh, we're sorry. talking about it now. <laughs> go right ahead. Uh, okay. The rabbit well, hole. You know. Well, um, the, the first theory, um, not the first, but the latest theory as to why ships disappear so rapidly in the Bermuda Triangle is a phenomenon known as rogue waves. And rogue waves um, have been reported by, by mariners since ancient times. And a lot of oceanographers and marine biologists thought that, well, this is just, you know, uh, a sea, a sea tail. But now they've been identified, they've been observed, and there's a lot that goes into it. So we all know that the ocean has currents. So you have ocean swells, okay? And, you know, I've been out on the ocean, and there's ocean swells. Even though I generally don't get seasick, I've been <laughs> in some ocean swells. And what happens with road waves, you have ocean swells, but then a number of ocean swells which start working in tandem. So you have several of these swells which start building up and empowering each other. So you have this rapid frequency of the waves. And then in the opposite direction, a sudden storm will cause a storm wave. So you have these ocean swells that hit the storm wave and the frequency slows, uh, drops, and instead it, it surges in amplitude. So what happens is you have these two great forces in the ocean, they collide and then they form a tower of water, a rogue wave, uh, um, which can be taller than a 10 story building, over a hundred feet tall. And these, these rogue waves occur and then disappear within seconds. So if you have a ship, even the size of the Cyclops, 520 feet long, um, you know, a million pounds, and all of a sudden a hundred foot wave hits it, right out of the blue, well, of course, the crew wouldn't have time to respond. They right. wouldn't have time to, to uh, engage in evasive maneuvers, much less send an SOS. And so this is what, what um, the latest theory is about why so many ships have disappeared. But Victoria, you correctly pointed out, what about compasses? <laughs> Rogue waves would not necessarily affect compasses, nor would rogue waves account for the aircraft that have disappeared? And perhaps the most famous account occurred in 1945. It was Flight 19, which was five Avenger fighter bombers, okay? And uh, we were still in World War II, but we're in the, the final days of World War II, and there was a training mission. And back then, Fort Lauderdale, uh, these, these five fighter bombers, state-of-the-art aircraft, for for the day, flew out of Fort Lauderdale to do a uh, training mission over the Bahamas. And they reported all of a sudden um, stormy conditions, lightning, wind, rain, and all the compasses going haywire. So so they're radioing to, to Fort Lauderdale, and they were under the command of Lieutenant Charles C. Taylor. He was an experienced airman, and he'd uh, a combat-hardened veteran from the South Pacific. So he was not some neophyte uh, rookie in charge of, of a squadron. Um, so, so he was, was radioing to Fort Lauderdale, and he said, we're somehow, we are over the Florida Keys, 
which didn't make sense because they were supposed to be over over the Bahamas. Well, they weren't over over the Florida Keys. It's that their compasses were completely thrown off kilter. Meanwhile, at the same time, there was a a call from another pilot over the Florida Keys who said that his compass was malfunctioning. So now we have in an area several hundred miles long between the Florida Keys and the Bahamas, we've got at least six different aircraft, including basically the top gun pilots of the day in, in flight, uh, flight 19, all reporting that their compasses are malfunctioning. Fort Lauderdale, um, uh, the Naval Air Command issued um, uh, an order that they switch on their emergency um, uh, locator, their ZBX receivers, which are supposed to lock on to land-based towers. But apparently there was so much electromagnetic RFI radio frequency interference that uh, flight, uh, flight 19 didn't get that. And they just completely disappeared. That's what I was gonna say. If there was so much electromagnetic interference and they were wireless radios, as you call them, it's just like when we have solar flares, um, it disrupts our TV signals. It would do the same thing with the audio, wouldn't it? Well, it would. And then when when the uh, Avengers went missing, Fort Lauderdale scrambled two rescue planes, and both of them disappeared. And they went missing. Too. Yeah, they, they that's... went missing too. Jeez. Yeah, that's something fascinating <laughs> to me about this story is that not only did the Flight 19 go missing, but also the rescue plane. So you had several planes here missing. In and to me, you know, if it's a solar flare or something like that, the rescue planes would not be affected by that. Exactly. Because it would have already passed. Yeah, and, and when the Navy conducted an investigation, um, the report actually said, it was as if they flew off to Mars. They, they found no trace. Now, with one of the, um, the uh, rescue planes, there was a ship out at sea that saw an explosion. And they did find some debris, and they did find an oil slick. So uh, one of the planes exploded, but we still don't know why. And now I want to answer Victoria's question directly. I have more questions now. <laughs> oh, good, good. <laughs> It, geologists have long theorized and believe that the Earth's core is molten iron and magnets are iron and that magnetite, which is uh, obviously a magnetic metal and it's liquid and that there may be some spots on the Earth where the magnetic elect, uh, activity is, is much more apparent and disruptive. So it isn't so much the ocean that is causing this, it's what's underneath the ocean floor. Right. So beneath the bottom of the ocean, it is believed that the um, magnetic activity of, uh, of this area, it surges. And then when it surges, it causes all the compasses to, to completely um, go erratic, they go haywire. And people confuse true north with magnetic north. The magnetic north pole and the true north pole are two different things. The University of Oregon has been studying magnetic north, which is actually a couple hundred miles south of, you know, what we consider the top of the earth, the north right. pole. And it moves. It's moved yeah. 620 miles to the east in the last century. So... For some reason, there's spots in the earth, and like Mike, what you were saying with the Alaska Triangle and the, the Dragon Triangle, these other areas, these very well could be areas where the, the earth's crust is thinner so that this surge of liquid magnetite is bubbling up uh, to, to the crust and then all of a sudden causing this huge EM disruption, which in turn would completely affect radio, it would affect uh, compasses, it would affect, affect all types of navigational equipment, anything that operated on magnetism or electromagnetic energy. Yeah, that's, and, that's actually exactly what we talked about on the Alaska Triangle was that the the magnetic core of the Earth, that it was you know welling up like that, creating... And we used it as an example talking about uh, vort, uh, vortices and, and portals so that, you know, you had the, the 
uh, vortex energy welling up from the Earth's magnetic core and then, you know, creating things like portals. And that's an, another theory that's out there is, you know, are some of these uh, disappearances actually, you know, disappearing through a portal into another dimension? I know one of those stories down there in the Bermuda Triangle is with Bruce Gernon, where he actually threw, right. flew through what he called electronic fog and fortunately came out in in this uh, dimension and we're able to you know interact and see him again but he right. had he had some sort of time slip there where he lost several minutes of time well he did and he didn't um i've i've gone over bruce gernan's story quite a bit and and uh, in 1970 he was a pilot who routinely flew between miami and andros island in the right. bahamas and like you said mike he was coming back one time and all of a sudden he lost time because the trip suddenly took a third less time. He, there was the, this uh, horrible lightning storm and what he called was an electronic fog. And the next thing he knows, he's over Miami. And that should have taken at least an hour. Instead, it was a couple minutes. Well, scientists have theorized that what may have happened is he got caught up in what's known as a roll cloud. And hmm. roll clouds are extremely rare phenomenon. And what happens is that um, the, the air pressure causes warm air to rise and then it, it, it hits below the dew point and it forms, it, it looks like it's rolling across uh, the horizon and roll clouds never touch, um, never touch um, the, the ground. And that what happened to him is all of a sudden he got hit from behind by a roll cloud and it propelled him at extreme speed. Now, you know, we all want to say that maybe he went into some time vortex, but here's why I doubt that he did. The clocks on Bruce Gernon's plane matched those at the runway where he landed in Miami. So there was no disparity in time. Okay. Now I'm not saying that Bruce Gernon didn't hit some type of vortex, but the counter to the argument and, and that's what I like about, about working with you, Victoria, and working with, with you, Mike, is that we look at both sides of the issue. So he very well could have flown into an anomaly, at least from a meteorological standpoint, almost as fascinating as a vortex, which is a roll cloud. But, Mike, to get back to what you're talking about at the Alaska Triangle, that, too, is is another theory with with um, with all of this is because as Victoria, you pointed out, so underneath the Earth's crust, we have magnetite. We have this liquid magnetic material and it's churning around and it is causing a magnetic tornado. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's a whirlpool magnetic. And, and Mike, um, we were talking about this, you and I were talking about this the other day about interdimensional mm -hmm. travel. Right. Right, and there's the Alcubera warp drive, and Miguel Alcubera was a Mexican physicist who in 1994 theorized that a craft in space, instead of um, going beyond the speed of light, which according to relativistic physics of uh, Albert Einstein is not possible, but um, by generating an intense electromagnetic field around the vessel, a so-called warp bubble, Okay, now we're getting all Star Trekky in here, but <laughs> a little bit. But but Star Trek, yeah, <laughs> Star Trek is is based uh, largely on on uh, science and theoretical physics. But the Alcubera warp drive theorizes that we can bend the fabric in space time. In other words, you stretch the fabric of space-time behind the vehicle and shrink it in front of the vehicle, ergo, you can do a dimensional shift from one location to another within seconds. So you're and just bending, you're bending time, basically. You're bending time and space. So okay. theoretically, it is possible that what is happening here on a geological basis is in effect creating this electromagnetic warp bubble, if you will, which could be causing these these aircraft and these ships to vanish within seconds. I mean, look, you know, I mean, I talk to dead people, and there's a lot of people who say, "Well, that's not possible." Okay, well, it is. All right, and and right. Uh, we're, you know, we're working on, and I write books about, and I've been studied about the science behind this. So just because something may be outside of our realm of experience or our understanding, or that we have not yet invented the technology 
uh, to prove this or to to enact this does not mean it doesn't exist. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Victoria, I, I know you had some additional questions, so oh, go right ahead. So, so five minutes ago. Um, yeah, but still what pertinent. Were we, what were we talking about? Uh, eh, I forgot. All right. I, I worked on the other <laughs> things, but I forgot. Not a problem. Uh, we'll go ahead and get some questions here from the chat room. I know we have some other things to discuss. Yeah, sure. But, um, well, first of all, there are a number of comments down in there. I like this one from Auntie Coco. This says, I saw your video on Guiding Echoes, Mark. Loved it. Thank you for being so real and keeping it real. So it's, Thank you. Some, I appreciate that. Your very way. kind. Um, Donald Lisco was wondering, uh, do we know how many of these triangles could actually exist on Earth? Wow. Okay. Well, Mike, you got one in Alaska. I got one down the street. Um, <laughs> we got the Dragon Triangle. You said there's one in Bridgewater. Like yeah. <laughs> well, Bridgewater's Massachusetts. Uh, Lake Michigan is is another. There's Nevada. So what is that? Five or six right there? It's five or six. On, do they go along the Telluric lines? Do they? Do well, the and that's a, that's a theory there that yeah with uh, the earth's energy grid the tolerant mm. currents and, and all that that they could be placed along uh along that but um i don't know we'd have to map question. it out i suppose well you what know it, it's funny because <laughs> you know when we think of you know the earth is geologically active you know and it's really it's almost startling when you think that the earth's core is molten okay so you know, uh, the Earth is what five billion years old. It's yeah. estimated between like yeah, like four and a half billion. It's an yeah. estimate. We don't know for sure. Yeah, we don't know for sure. But that's a heck of a long time for it not to cool down and become one solid chunk of of rock. You know, um, and it, it's it's actually fascinating to think that there's this glob of molten iron that formed a crust, and these. Little parasite creatures, meaning us, <laughs> have formed on the outside of it, and yet it's encapsulated in a life-sustaining bubble of air. Wow. Okay. So, so when people say, "Well, that's not possible," think about that for a second. And so, the Earth being geologically active, um, the you know there are volcanoes in the Caribbean. I, I was on the island of Montserrat back when I was on the Polynesia. And uh, Montserrat, uh, I remember walking around in the volcano there, and I was expecting to be like this big cone, you know, like you, you see in the movies. And it said it was like, boop, boop, boop. it was like this uh, sulfur pit. And we're walking around, and they said, well, this is an active volcano. I was like, well, no kidding. It's hot, and it smells of sulfur and all this. Well, a year later, the island of Montserrat exploded. Oh, no. And uh, the volcano erupted and essentially destroyed uh, most of the island, which is, uh, once again, another tragedy. Beautiful island and amazing people that live there. And um, Alaska certainly is geologically active. I mean, Earth is geologically active. So, um, and, and who's to say that another one of these uh, anomalous magnetic fields won't occur somewhere else? A couple years ago, I was in Hawaii we were filming a pilot and I was in the helicopter that the uh, Smithsonian and Nat Geo uses. And it was really cool. This is like this real aerodynamic and we we're flying over Kilauea or not directly over, but close to it when uh, Kilauea was in full eruption mode. And seeing that was just one of the most breathtaking and overwhelming things I've ever experienced. And the Hawaiians on board were like, Mark, do you feel anything? You know, and I, I'm looking at this from a scientific standpoint that, well, you know, this is geologic activity, but I got this really strange sensation of pain and childbirth. And the Hawaiians take their belief in the goddess Pele very, very seriously. And let me tell you something. To me, it was more than just watching an incredible volcanic eruption. There was something I, I, I'm, I'm not going to go so far and say that, you know, I communicated with the goddess Pele, but there was something there that was more than just geologic phenomenon. Now, maybe I was picking up on intensive electromagnetic activity, or maybe I was patching into some type of interdimensional communication. Who's to say? But uh, as Victoria, Mike, and, and I know, there is a lot more to reality than what meets the human eye. 
Okay, can I ask you a dumb question, kind of? Kind there of dumb, are no dumb really questions. Dumb. There are no dumb questions. Oh, hello. Hi, have we met? No. <laughs> okay. Is it possible to communicate? Okay, you're a psychic. Can you communicate with the Earth? Was that perhaps a volcano giving birth to something new? Maybe we're picking up on that. Well, um, certainly I mean, it was giving birth in that uh, the big island of Hawaii is now, I think, two square miles larger because of that eruption. Um, I've communicated with a, a fair amount of non-human spiritual intelligence, um, animals for one, also the elementals. Mm -hmm. And the elementals, um, in Japan, they call them the kami. Uh, in in England, they call them fairies. In Ireland, leprechauns. In Hawaii, was it the metahune? Uh, so it depends where in the world you go. So there certainly are many different forms of spiritual intelligence. It is only human arrogance which assumes that we populate uh, the right. spirit world. So, so to answer your question directly, you know, Victoria, I'm going to keep an open mind on that one. That's a definite maybe. <laughs> Sounds good, though. I mean, why not? I mean, it, it's a living thing. It has feelings, I guess, you know, I mean, we well, heard it. <laughs> I, I've been extremely honored in, in my life to have met um, Neil Armstrong. I met Buzz Aldrin. I met John Glenn. Um, I met uh, Captain Ed Foreman. And um, talking to astronauts, um, and asking what was it like? And I, I had the most time with John Glenn. And he said, when you look down and see Earth and how alive it is, mm -hmm. he said, it's breathtaking because there's no more beautiful sight. He said, and then he started thinking humans are crazy because this is the only place we have to live and they seem hell bent on blowing it up. Yep. Yeah, pretty much. It's a, it's a real shame too, but um, yeah, we're, we're crazy like that, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. Um, well, we take for, I guess we take it for granted, you know, uh, for the most part. I mean, that's, that's a unique perspective that the astronauts have from being outside the planet and looking in and, you know, most people are kind of just inundated with their daily lives and, and tasks and all that and kind of forget about the bigger picture. Yeah, okay. what, what, I'm sorry, go ahead, Victoria. Oh, I was gonna, I'm sorry, sorry. Um, I was just going to say, if you follow astrology, um, I was looking at the videos and stuff in the charts yesterday, and we're actually moving into a 200-year time period where the air signs are going to rule. So it's supposed to be um, more healing, more thinking, more doing, less killing, less destructive. So maybe that's what we need. Well, that would certainly be an improvement so. over, oh, yeah. the, you know, uh, human history. And, yeah. well, you know, um, I'm trying to remember, I think it was Buzz Aldrin who said what they didn't expect when they're standing on the room, uh, on the moon, is the earth rise. I mean, they knew that, yeah. you know, they're here. Yeah. They said, you know, like we always talk about, oh, you know, here we go up to the beach and watch the full moon rise over the ocean. It's like, oh, he said, when the earth rose on the horizon of the moon and they're like, <gasps> I mean, how big and blue <laughs> and beautiful. They, I mean, it, it, they said it just was, was astounding. And I remember, um, so, you know, uh, Neil Armstrong, he had a reputation for real stiff and, and, uh, yeah, he, he was, he was a fascinating guy, but he was, he was, um, an astronaut to the fingertips. And I remember this little kid goes, what was it like walking on the moon? And all of a sudden he goes, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> he said it was so much, I mean, it was amazing to see him light up like that. And, uh, you know, he said, cause we could, you know, because it's got one sixth the amount of gravity that we do. So you can jump and bounce and, and all that type of thing. And certainly NASA was like, please don't jump and bounce too much because we don't need you puncturing your spacesuit." Right. But, uh, <laughs> That would be bad. <laughs> just, now, just a little, of, yeah. yeah. Get a little duct tape. <laughs> electromagnetic fields, supposedly, according to to what I've read um, uh, in astronautics periodicals, Mars does not have um, magnetic fields. Really? Interesting. Yeah. Isn't that? You know, because hmm. uh, Mars is supposedly, you know, the most like Earth in, right. in, in our solar system. 
but apparently it doesn't have a north or a uh, south pole or a magnet magnetic sphere. And and I'm assuming NASA has has run enough tests to prove that. But uh, you know, is that also one of the things that makes Earth unique? Is is our our magnetic poles? If it doesn't have a magnetic pole, does it flip around as it rotates the sun, or or does it stay in some sort of geosynchronous orbit that doesn't make it flip? What the um, Mars? Well, Mars rotates. Okay, it rotates. Uh, you know, a Martian day and a, a Martian year. Of course, I think it's like a year and a half, or was it two years? Because it's farther, farther away right. from the sun right. and it takes but it, it longer. It doesn't, it doesn't flip like this. It does rotate. It rotates. They have a night and a day. It spins. It spins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it spins. All, it all the planets do. Yeah, all the planets okay. do, and all the planets are essentially. If you look at the sun, they're all like in the same band. They're all essentially in on, like on the same latitude, if you will, and um, they all rotate counterclockwise uh, around the around the sun. Um, but, but it doesn't uh, go like north south, flippy like that. Uh, I believe that they, it, it, it does. I, oh, I see what you're saying. In other words, because yeah. we have a winter, I believe Hi. that it does. Okay. Um, and I remember that years ago, there was a thought that um, there were canals on Mars yes. and there were patches. <laughs> and so people thought, oh, you know, and uh, um, they got, you know, upon a closer examination, uh, there wasn't. But um, I, I still think that it is, it is in humanity's best interest to explore Mars. Oh, yeah. And uh, because that's what we do, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, Columbus was a horrible person, all right? Um, he was in search of fortune and glory. And when they encountered, Columbus's crew encountered the, the indigenous population of the Bahamas. And the, the people in the Bahamas were a lot different than the people in Central America, Okay, like you get the Aztecs and the Mayans, they're practicing human sacrifice and cannibalism and, and they had empires and they were waging wars. But the, um, the, uh, the Arrow, no, not the Arawak. Um, yeah, the Arawak Indians of the Bahamas were essentially uh, very, very peaceful. And Columbus wrote in his journal, they'll make excellent slaves. And, you know, it, that always to me just, just, yeah. you know, hits me here because, you, you know, I always wanted to think of Christopher Columbus as a great man. He was an explorer. But when you look at uh, the way the Europeans came to the New World and just subjugated it and infected the indigenous population with diseases, within 10 years of the Spaniards landing in Central America, 90% of the population died from European diseases. We're talking smallpox, the flu, the common cold. And and so when people say, oh, this pandemic is a hoax, do you think the Aztecs, the Mayans, and the people of Central America felt that this plague that came out of nowhere was a hoax? And and so that's why we have to take these things uh, very seriously. And we have to start respecting each other and and certainly Mother Earth. Sorry, I don't mean to get uh, no, it's semi, semi-political here, but and it's not really political. It's a matter of survival. It's a matter of survival. It is, and I've um, I, I've read accounts of you know, like along the Amazon. You read some of these ancient reports from actually the the Spaniards themselves, where. You know, they had discovered these, you know, great large cities. And then when other explorers came after them, they were all gone. And the only explanation they had was, well, you know, it must have been, you know, the smallpox or whatever. But for many, many years, people didn't, you know, believe that these civilizations actually existed. But now with the decimation of the rainforest, which is another tragedy, they're actually stumbling across the ruins of these cities that, you know, had been reported long, long ago. So yes, they were actually decimated by the, the smallpox. And oh yeah, it's, it's, um, it's tragic. I, I I spent I've spent time both in Central America and in Peru and uh, both in the Andes and the Peruvian Amazon, and um, you know the Incan Empire. Okay, the Aztecs they 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 were they were you know one thing, and the Mayans were another. But the Peruvian um, the Incas. It was essentially a third of uh, a good quarter to a third of South America was under their control. It was roughly the size of the Roman Empire. Okay, that's how big the Inca Empire was. Mm -hmm. And when the Spaniards invaded, they had 150 soldiers. The Incan army was 100,000 men, but they were so sick 
Most of them could barely stand. And then when the Spanish unleashed cannon fire, um, it caused pandemonium. I mean, the idea that 150 men could defeat 100,000 is, is really shocking. But by the time the Spaniards ever got to the Incan capital of Cusco in the Andes, um, smallpox had essentially done done the work for them. I mean, it, it's 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 such a great tragedy uh, when you look at this. And when we study history in school, they gloss over all this. Yeah, they do. You know. Yeah. And uh, this is the history we need to we need to be learning. People need to understand uh, what happened. And I think that we must learn from the past. These pandemics, these plagues. These have have decimated uh, human human populations for millennia. No, they have, they have. We got about ten minutes left in the show. I do want to get to um, a couple of these other questions here. Um, back to the Bermuda Triangle. Uh, sure. Sarah Youssef asks: Has anyone done a satellite imaging of the area? Surely, if the ships and planes were in the area, you could see them. Depending on how deep the bottom of the ocean is. Now, that is one of the great mysteries, and that's a good question, because they have been searching for these million-pound ships, the Cyclops, and they can't find them. That, that is, and so one of the theories is that the Gulf Stream is so strong, it pulls the wreckage away. Now, I can almost buy that argument with the Avengers, okay, but not with a ship that weighs a million pounds. So that ties into... Could it be a vortex? Could it be electromagnetic activity pulling them into, you know, beneath the Earth's surface? Uh, what exactly is it? There's another theory, too, that the bottom of the ocean there produces tremendous amounts of methane, and that methane bubbles reduce the buoyancy of water so a ship would immediately sink. It wouldn't be able to sustain itself, and that there's even the possibility that a large enough methane bubble would would uh, could possibly bring down an aircraft now i think you know with the ship i'll almost buy that with an aircraft i won't plus methane is not going to make your compass go crazy but if it was a big <laughs> methane bubble and it popped wouldn't it go up and it could disrupt a plane well, it could flight? it, it, it yeah. could it could but you know, it, but it wouldn't make the uh, compasses go go haywire. Yeah, but if so, it happens so, so quickly, they're like ah, and then they crash and they go in the ocean. How do you recover from that? So that has nothing to do with the compass. I don't think it would. Yeah, but, but there were reports of the of the compasses having issues. Is, no. is the thing? Well, okay. Oh yeah, yeah. They they were already <laughs> radioing, and that's why that's why Flight 19. All of a sudden, they thought they were over the Gulf of Mexico, um, west of the Florida Keys, when in actuality. Their last known position was still over the Bahamas. So then that's because all their instrumentation was completely disrupted and, and they, they were clueless. Now, standard operating procedure for the U.S. Navy was if something goes wrong off of the coast of North America, fly due west because then you'll go over. And in fact, one of uh, um, Lieutenant Taylor's, uh, one of the, the pilots said, if we just damn fly west, we'll be okay, we'll get home. And apparently, uh, for whatever reason, Lieutenant Taylor ignored ignored the plea from this other pilot. Oh, wow. Not good. Yeah, that's a shame. Now, here's another quickie mystery. Sure. 1991, a bunch of treasure hunters found some Avenger fighter bombers in the ocean right off of Fort Lauderdale. But the serial numbers on them did not match Flight 19. So they found the same type of aircraft, but not the ones from that ill-fated uh, uh, flight. Did they ever di uh, discover where these were from? You know, as much as I've checked on that, no. You know, and then that gets into this, ooh, is it an alternate universe? <laughs> right, you <know>? right. <laughs> So I guess that's a mystery to be explored another time. But yeah, no, they never found where those were. But you know, back in World War II, they they were doing all sorts of uh, uh, tests, and and back then Florida wasn't really the vacation destination that it turned right. into. So they they could have been doing mock battles and things, and they could have crashed some uh, some planes on on some test flights, and they really wouldn't have made that big of a deal about it. 
especially if, you know, the pilots parachuted out and they rescued him, you know, because we're talking almost, you know, 50 years after it happened. And, mm-hmm. and so who would have, you know, who would have recorded that? Right. But if they were doing something like the Philadelphia experiment. Who's well, now, if, it's, if you watch <laughs> close encounters, real? if you watch close encounters of the third kind, then the planes <laughs> ended up out in the desert. So, you know, <laughs> I knew I saw him somewhere. <laughs> there is actually a huge plane graveyard between Phoenix and Tucson. Oh. It's just the weirdest thing. You're driving out there and there's planes. Yeah, I drove by that. I, I, that so that's what that is. Because I was going from, from yeah. Tucson to Phoenix and, and we were driving by there. And it's like, no, that's a lot of airplanes. It's a plane graveyard. You can just go there. For, hey, if I need a carburetor or whatever planes you use. So they, they, they <laughs> harvest parts off of it, I guess. Yeah. It's It's aliens. That's it. <laughs> That's it. It's always aliens. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this, Mark, since it's also right in that area. What do you think of the Bimini Road? The Bimini Road, um, okay, that that's – many people believe that could be part of Atlantis because it appears to be all of um, a, a road. It's like a mile or so long, and uh, there are square blocks that fit together and uh, it's off uh, the island of Bimini. And, but there are oceanographers who say that the Bimini Road, hold on, let me, let me pull up my cheat sheet here on sure. the Bimini Road. <laughs> That's funny because Lee and I were just talking about that the other day. <laughs> oh, were you? <laughs> yeah, I was okay. asking, I got questions, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, Okay, the archaeologists call this pseudo-archaeology, and uh, the narrative that the Bimini Road is some type of secret pathway to Atlantis, what they're saying is that um, it's actually a natural formation, and they found this type of um, anomaly in other places in the ocean. And they do, they look like roadblocks. And if it was Atlantis, according to uh, Greek legend and Greek myths, Atlantis would be 7,000 years old. But these blocks are, are um, organic, and they carbon-14 dated them, and they're only two to 4,000 years old. So they wouldn't fit into uh, Plato's uh, analysis uh, or, or legend. And also another geologist, Eugene Shin, he was able to do some drilling at the core. They call it beach rock. And um, he was able to conclude that they're, they're, um, they're all over the place. And also that, once again, they, uh, they, they were not man-made. So, but, you know, there's always, there's always the skeptics because other people are saying that these could be a road to what would have been Atlantis. Um, and hold on. Atlantis was first mentioned in Plato's uh, Timaeus, mm-hmm. and he describes a war between Atlantis and Athens. And then according to Plato, the Athenians defeated the Atlantans. And then in 1968, there were some divers off of Bimini in the Bahamas. They discovered this line of stones in 18 feet of water, which looked like like a, um, a road. And the blocks are rectangular and looks like they've been cut on right angles. Um, but beach rock, in fact, um, my dining room table is made out of beach rock. <laughs> and, uh, and I got it uh, some years ago. It's really beautiful. They also call it coral stone or fossil stone. And um, you're not supposed to mine it anymore. So I, I got mine before for the ban on it. Um, you know, of course, I have to say that. On oh, so you have contraband <laughs> there. OK, <laughs> but but um, but uh, I, I say, honestly, the jury's still out on that. I don't I don't think there's been enough um, enough study done on it. And okay, so these things are two to four thousand years old. That's still a long time. Let's say they're four thousand years old. I've never been in the Atlantis school of thought, and I know that for psychic mediums, that's very unusual. I know Edgar Casey was big on Atlantis, but I, you know, one of my passions is archaeology, mm-hmm. and I think that before we jump to conclusions about something we have to subject it to the scientific method, examine it empirically. And to date, there's been very little evidence that Atlantis ever existed. 
And if it did, that it wouldn't necessarily be in the Bahamas. The most likely um, location for Atlantis is, is assumed to be the island of Santorini in, in the uh, Mediterranean, which was destroyed in, in classical times, actually before classical times, let's say about 2,500 plus years ago by a great volcano. And certainly that, that whole, the Aegean Sea between Turkey and, and Greece is very geologically active. They just had a big earthquake there, I think about a week or so ago. Um, it's like six on yeah. the Richter scale. So, so I, I would tend to think that if there was an Atlantis, it would actually be more likely to have been in the Mediterranean than it would be in the Bahamas. Yep. Well, Mike, what are your thoughts on? Well, Disney I mean, my thoughts. I mean, I, I never believed that the Bimini Road was was Atlantis. I'd like to know what their uh, carbon dating would, because you're not supposed to be able to carbon date rocks. So there would have to be something maybe that's embedded with it. That they're carbon dating, I'm not sure. But I, what I always looked at it was because of the structure of it. It's like, okay, that looks vaguely man-made. So perhaps it was some sort of ancient wall or whatever. Now, the ocean levels are higher now than they were a long time ago. You know, ever since the Ice Age ended, uh, the waters have been, you know, filling back up. So, you know, we have uh, so much archaeology, so many ancient cities now that are underwater. This could have been one, not Atlantis. Um, I've seen a lot of different arguments for where Atlantis could be throughout the Mediterranean and even out um, into the Atlantic Ocean a little bit, but not that, that far, far west. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's the problem I have with it, too. Yeah. The reason they could carbon, you're, you're absolutely correct. You can't carbon-14 date inorganic matter. So that way, if they find a sword, they can't, oh, let's carbon-14 date it. But, but the beach rock, it's made of, um, it was, it's organic, okay? It's coral, basically. Okay. And so their strata, okay, um, my notes say that um, Eugene Shin was able to do drilling to get the co to the core of the beach rock, okay? And he was able to conclude that the older beach rock cores were identical to the newer ones on the main swimming beach near Bimini. They also noted that the blocks were embedded with trash left by tourists. Oh, well, that's always <laughs> nice. Okay. Uh, while the beach rock on the Bimini Road had no material embedded, showing no proof of any ancient civilization, which, which is fascinating too. Then he X-radiographed the Bimini roadblocks to reveal internal stratification, so that would indicate organic, that was consistent with beach rock in the area. Um, as well as the fact that the internal stratification is a natural process that would be almost impossible to replicate in man-made production. So the carbon-14 dating on the Bimini Road blocks show that the stone was actually two to 4,000 years old. According to Plato, Atlantis would be around 7,000 year old, making the Bimini Road or wall much too young to be leading to Atlantis. So hmm. there you go. All right. All right. All right. I have one question. It's bugged me since I was a kid. Since In Search Of was on. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, I In Search that. Of. Nice. I love that show. Anyway, um, if Atlantis is not over there by Florida out that way, why is it called the Atlantic Ocean then? Um, yes. <laughs> I always uh, wondered about that too, but um, the the Straits of Gibraltar mm -hmm. um, were – um, according to Greek mythology, the world, the sky was held oh. up by the Titan Atlas. Okay. okay? Right. And what <laughs> happened was Hercules showed up, and that's why they call the Rock of Gibraltar the Pillars of Hercules. And um, Hercules took the burden from Atlas, and Atlas was ready to take off on him and stick Hercules with it. And Hercules said, but wait. Can, can can you hold this for a minute so I can get my cloak to put it on my shoulders to cushion the burden? And Atlas, okay. So he picks up the sky and Hercules says, see ya. <laughs> so, so, in, <laughs> so that's why the Rock of Gibraltar was referred to as the Pillar of Hercules. And the Atlantic Ocean was named after the Titan Atlas. But that's a very, because I always okay. thought the same thing. Ooh, Atlantic, where did the name come from? And I was like, okay, we're going to get an etymological link here. And right. shucks, we didn't. 
Darn. That was good, though. Sharpest tack in the box, Victoria. <laughs> Sometimes I'm All the right. only tack in the box. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we are at the end of our show. Mark, this has been fascinating. We always love having you on. Um, where can people find you and your work? And I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll put up your uh, your books here again. Sure. Uh, my website is evidenceofeternity.com. That's the same as uh, my book, Evidence of Eternity. Please visit my site. Sign up for my newsletter. Um, you can follow me on social media. You can order my books. And if you would like to do a one-on-one session with me where I, I do a reading of um, extending, uh, if you mention uh, Mike or Victoria or even more importantly, Edge of the Rabbit Hole, in the application form, you'll qualify for a reduced fee reading for a session. And I want to make that available to to fans and listeners of Edge of the Rabbit Hole. And and Mike and Victoria, thank you so much for having me on. And um, I look forward to returning. Absolutely. Yeah. We Like I said, we love having you on, Mark. Always very insightful. And yeah, everybody, you know, mention us, get a discount from Mark uh, with one of his readings and definitely check out his books. So. Again, Mark. Looking forward to when you come back down to Houston. So, um, absolutely, <laughs> and um, you know, um, I was talking to Mike. We got plenty of other uh, intriguing and mysterious topics to talk about. So. We do, we do. Yeah, always a yeah, lot we of got, we got interesting jobs. You know, we do. <laughs> it's like it's. Uh, um, I, I I thank God every day that that I'm able to to. Um, to work with the, the metaphysical world and, and uh, certainly to work with people like you, Mike and Victoria, um, because not to paraphrase the X-Files, but to paraphrase the X-Files, the <laughs> truth is out there. <laughs> it is, it exactly. is. And we are discovering it, so. <laughs> That's right. And then we come on edge of the rabbit hole and discuss it. So there we go. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> All right, Mark, take care Thank my friend. You. All right. Have a great Many night. Blessings. All right. Thank Good you. Night. Good night. Good night.